Hello and welcome. You're listening to Nature's a Hoot with Tom Marath and Hannah Shaw, the wildlife podcast from the Hawk Conservancy Trust. If you are itching to know more about biodiversity or barn owls or eager to explore the worlds of woodlands and wetlands, basically, if you like wildlife, you're in good company. And you don't need to be an expert. We've got that covered as we're joined by some of the greatest voices in conservation to tell us more about what's happening right now in the wild world around us. And Hannah, we're kicking off this new season of episodes in style with a special guest, Lucy Hodgson, a.k.a. Lucy Lapwing. Yes, and we have a brand new feature to add to the show, which I'm really excited about, and you'll be hearing more about this shortly. We're so pleased to be welcoming welcoming you back after a little break from the show. We especially love the chance to bring you that special episode last month. Yeah, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, check it out wherever you get your podcasts, as it was full of inspirational messages from you, our wonderful listeners, about what it is about nature that inspires you. Um, Hannah, what about Nature's a Hoot Live? How fun was that? It was amazing. I thought it went so well. Did you, Tom? I was very pleased. I was nervous to begin yeah. with because the great thing about doing a podcast is you can just take the stuff out that makes you sound like a I complete know. idiot. But in, <laughs> when it's live, it's live and that's it. Yeah. First time doing a proper live event for me. You have a lot of practice, I feel, because you do your commentating. So a bit different for me because, I mean, okay, so, so I've done some public speaking, but when you've got a camera in front of you as well, I feel like it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, and no idea how many people are watching at any given yeah. time. Like, at least when we're doing our displays here at the Trust, you can see who's watching you. You can kind of interact. But yeah, yeah strange cool. experience, but um, really, really exciting. And it was great to let everybody have a look at our Kestrel documentary. Yeah. Um, if you haven't actually managed to see our Nature's a Hoot live, then you can do so on our YouTube uh, channel. Just head over to our YouTube channel. Uh, and find Nature's a Hoot live. It'll be there. You can watch along and uh, you can see what we were getting up to uh, with our Kestrel special. Yeah, absolutely. It was a brilliant um, a brilliant documentary. I really enjoyed doing the live event. So, Tom, have you spotted any good wildlife recently? Anything to report in the last month or so? Well, spring is kind of springing, isn't it? So, um, just wandering around it the grounds is. here, we've got snowdrops. Snowdrops? We've got snowdrops. <laughs> Uh, springing up everywhere and uh, things are starting to bud. I had the nicest experience uh, when I was on a walk very recently because a pair of ravens flew very low over my head. They were flying away from a group of crows. So I have half a sneaky suspicion that they're either pinching food or maybe raiding a nest or something. But I have to say... Like, I know birds of prey are kind of our thing. That's what we do. But ravens have got a special soft spot in my heart. I think they're, they're incredible. Yeah. It's that intelligence and just behind the eyes, they, the cogs always look like they're turning. Yeah, I love watching corvids as well. I think they're so interesting because they are just so intelligent. I don't think people realise how clever they are. I think they just, you know, sort of pass it off. Oh, it's just a crow. Um, but they are very intelligent birds. I'd, I'd like to learn more about them. I think I need to maybe read up a little bit on corvids. I've I got a book for Christmas because they're like my favourite bird. Uh, I did get a book um, for Christmas that you could borrow oh, if you, you. want to. <laughs> um, have you seen anything of note as spring is just around the corner? Yeah, um, yeah, I've seen lots of snowdrops, which is lovely. I do like going and looking at trees at this time of year because they're all starting to come into bud, and it is quite a nice time of year to to start 
learning stuff as well so it's a nice time of year to start learning bird song because there aren't too many birds going mad so you can sort of pick out different species but it's also a good time to start learning trees because trees are in bud you can identify species from their buds so yeah so often you find in a field guide it's a nice way to sort of um, find out about trees and work on your ID um, I did find a really nice pine cone the other day from a Monterey pine which is one that is a species which is um, sort of was just it's not native so it was grown as like an ornamental species but it's a big pine and the pine cones itself are massive like they're like the size of your fist wow um, and I was just really pleased with myself for being able to identify the tree from the pine cone yeah. <laughs> so Hannah question is did you take it home or did you leave it where it was? Well, you see, it's a little bit naughty, isn't it? But I thought about it and I knew it wasn't native because it was ginormous. So I did take one home, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've all got our little <laughs> collections of, of wild stuff, nature stuff. Yeah. There were lots and lots on the ground and I looked through, I was very carefully picking them up because a lot of them had... Um, Mm. like wood lice and things living underneath so I was careful to replace the ones that had anything living underneath um, and made sure I took one that wasn't providing a home for anything good you've been very <laughs> ethical there with your choices for what to take home now Hannah this month we're introducing a new element to nature to who isn't that exciting yes um, it's called the matter of fact challenge uh, this is a challenge that involves you and I Hannah going head to head each month to come up with the best fact in the chosen category. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. And we'll be giving you, our listeners, our best. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we'll be popping them up on our Instagram stories and on our Twitter as a poll. And then it's up to you, our wonderful listeners, to decide the victor. <laughs> uh, let's go into our very first matter of fact challenge. This month's matter-of-fact challenge is... Weirdest animal adaptation. So I'm going to go first, Tom. Of course. And I challenge you to beat this one. Go on, then. <laughs> Mine is the wood frog. The reason that I've chosen the wood frog is because this species of frog has adapted to very cold climates. And you wouldn't expect an amphibian to be very well adapted to a cold climate. So what a wood frog does is during the winter, it actually can completely freeze its body. And during this time, they completely stop breathing, their heart stops beating, and their bodies produce um, a special substance that stops their um, cells from completely freezing, because then they would die. Um, and they basically, so they look like they're completely frozen. Wow. But then when the weather warms up, they thaw out like a like when you're thawing out your chicken on on the on the sideboard. They thaw out and come back to life. Well, they haven't actually died, but so they they reanimate, if you will. That's incredible. Yeah. So they're found in just a bit of background, so people know what we're talking about. They're found in the United States. Um, so in the forests of Alaska and the northeast of the U.S. or northeast of the Americas. So you can have a look online and find. Uh, wood frogs and look at some pictures of frozen wood frogs. That is amazing. It's going to take some beating, Hannah. A frog that can freeze itself over winter and come back to life. Right, so what is yours? Mine, we're going to go avian for the first week 
I'm going to try and branch out into other parts of the animal kingdom eventually. Yeah. But we're going to go avian. We're going to go across to uh, southern Africa. Uh, red billed hornbill or yellow billed hornbills. Um, in particular, they have this weird nesting habit. And you might know what I'm going to say here. I think I do know, yeah. If you're, if you're lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time in South Africa, you can observe how these birds build their nests and how they lay their eggs and then how their youngsters eventually fledge. Now, essentially... Yellow-billed hornbills, red-billed hornbills, they're a monogamous species. So they'll usually just pair up with one other partner, but then they'll pick another partner the the following year. So they kind of come back to the same place, but maybe have another partner. They call to each other and they start building a nest in a tree cavity. So a nice hole in a tree. And the next step is totally bizarre. It is like the weirdest adaptation, I think. And that is that the male and female work together picking up bits of mud and loose feathers and uh, occasionally some of their own poo to essentially brick the female into the tree, like build a wall of mud up the side of the tree so that she can't get out, basically. She's stuck on the inside of the tree in order to incubate the eggs uh, and, of course, lay the eggs in the first place. Now, they leave a tiny little slit in the side of the, uh, in the, side of the tree where the male can continue to feed the female, keep her alive. The female molts all of her flight feathers, and it's not until about 25 days after the first egg has been laid uh, that the eggs will start hatching, the female continues to feed them, and uh, around 16 days after hatching, the female will finally break out of the hole. So she spends the best part of a month sealed inside a tree. Wow. Yeah. Completely imprisoned. Completely imprisoned. Um, uh, some people say that it is a way of reducing predation. It's harder for predators to get inside to try and take the eggs or the youngsters. Um, there's often a lot of competition for nesting sites as well. So if you're sealed inside the tree, it's kind of less uh, less appealing to come and try and take it over. I think that is a pretty weird adaptation to seal your partner inside a tree. Wow, that is a good one, Tom, I must say. I'm impressed. Thank you. Are you worried now? I'm a little bit worried, but no, I, st- I, th- <laughs> I think that the wood frog will power on through. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Okay, remember, it's up to you. Wherever and however you're listening to Nature's a Hoot, to vote for which fact you think best fits the bill of weirdest animal adaptation. Not favourite presenter. Of course not. So, <laughs> Best weirdest <laughs> Absolutely, it's nothing to do with (laughs) favouritism whatsoever. So head over to our Instagram (laughs) stories or our Twitter feed, both at Hawk Conservancy, to vote. We will be revealing the winner of this episode's Matter of Fact Challenge next time. Thanks for playing. So this month we have a special guest joining us. Um, Lucy Hodgson, better known online as Lucy Lapwing. And Lucy is a naturalist, conservationist and self-proclaimed all-round nature nerd. Lucy works in science communication, making those tricky sciencey subjects a little bit more accessible via social media and more recently her own series of birdsong videos on YouTube. Lucy joined us hot off the back of filming the latest series of Winter Watch to talk nature, birdsong and eco-dread. Well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Lucy Lapwing, or is it Lucy Hodson? What what should we call you? <laughs> Ooh, bit of both. Uh, yeah, no, Lucy Lapwing is just my online persona. I wish it was my real name. So. It's like an alter ego. Yeah, thank ego. you for having me. Very excited <laughs> to be here. 
Yes, <laughs> different personality. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be Lucy Lamplady off of Alphabet Land. I don't know if any of you remember that. <laughs> Alphabet Land, yeah, in the recesses of my when brain. Learned, yeah. yeah, Annie Apple. Yeah, Annie, Annie Apple. Yes, yeah. Bouncy Bed. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and so it used to be Lucy Lamplady when it was just photos of me, you know, like on the beers on a night out. Um, <laughs> and then when I started actually writing about nature and getting a bit more of a, you know, an interest in that, I thought, well, this needs to be a bit more nature related. So Lapwing begins with L, and that's about as deep as it goes. <laughs> just purely for the alliteration. <laughs> yeah, literally. So was uh, was the wildlife thing? Did that come kind of later in life for you then, or is it, is it something that you've always loved um it's something I've always always loved um and I you know I say this quite a lot but I hand on my heart believe that every single kid has it in them like any you know if you've got a toddler or a baby that's not been tainted um <laughs> every single one will naturally love nature you know if you put a kid in I don't know a mud pit or in the garden you know they see a frog they see a worm they see a snail they are instantly naturally fascinated and unfortunately a lot of people lose it so for as long as I can remember, it was just a fixation with anything living, you know, any wildlife, anything. I didn't have a knowledge. I didn't, you know, I knew, I knew a lot from the books I had as a kid. So I could tell you all sorts about like whales and dolphins and things from far flung corners of the world. But I didn't have a lot of British nature knowledge until, well, I went and studied wildlife conservation at uni. So I was obviously into it, but I didn't actually have <laughs> any, uh, yeah, I didn't actually have any natural history knowledge until I, until I kind of started working in conservation really. So. Yeah. No, it's nice that that it it, it really is a, a quite a natural thing, isn't it, to be fascinated? I mean, we're in more normal times. We're lucky to have lots of school visit school visiting parties come to us, and we do things like owl pellet dissections. And it's all yes. that when you tell them what's in an owl pellet, it's all the kids are like absolutely fascinated. They think it's going to be great, and it's all the teachers that are like repulsed by it. They're, they've obviously exactly. grown out of being fascinated <laughs> more than they are. Um, yeah, it's so disgusting. easy. It's a slippery slope of, of kind of disgust and fear and, you know, it perpetuates itself. So if you start getting scared of one thing, it can drift into another. And, you know, yeah, like you said, if you've not been told to be fearful of something, why wouldn't owl pellets be the best thing you've ever seen? Like, yeah, brilliant. why not? <laughs> did you always think that you would work with wildlife as well? Did you always think you, would, you wanted to work in conservation or was that something that came later? So um, obviously very passionate I... about it. <laughs> yes perhaps a bit too much um <laughs> i always wanted to work with animals you know as a kid so i'm not from a, a wildlifey background as it were um but my parents let me have a really outdoorsy childhood so all i knew was just animals are the best thing ever so when you're a kid and you say that you get kind of channeled into like being a vet or yeah you know any of those kind of of, of jobs and it wasn't until i was an older like perhaps 12 that I heard of this concept of conservation and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> this is a thing. So yeah, my career's advice at school was absolutely shocking. I'm sure a lot I of people think can mine relate. Was you know, the I, was, same. I was recommended to be a florist or a dog groomer. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like, close. that's sometimes when I look up like car insurance and it says, what is your job? And sometimes things like that are the closest thing. I think sometimes mm. it comes up zookeeper, but it's like the closest, like, like you say, dog groomer or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> which is definitely not what you're doing no <laughs> yeah or you could work in a pet shop yeah yes. brilliant. <laughs> yeah. i do remember those actually they said what what do you fancy doing i said well i really really like birds of prey and i reckon that's what i'm going to do 
And I remember the the person doing the uh, giving us the advice just kind of closed their book and went, "Well, that sounds like you've you've got a good going on there. Off you go." You know, <laughs> so I didn't really have anything to say to that. Just carry on. It's such a little known thing, is it? That they wouldn't know what to recommend you if you say you want to work with birds of prey. They don't know what kind of A levels or degree might benefit that. No, probably none of them. <laughs> Most of them are <laughs> yeah, like vast completely ma- useless. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> vast majority of people don't don't understand wildlife and nature anyway, so they can't really advise you on a route. Often is what I've found anyway. Definitely. So I know you've been really, really busy at the time of uh, talking to you. You're kind of hot off of the back of doing um winter watch aren't you you're sort of working on that yes. how was that oh that's just like a dream come true i'm still such a fangirl about it um, <laughs> so it's only the second show i've worked on i worked on spring watch in 2020 which was obviously very unusual um and then this time i was in wales with yolo's team um yolo's lovely team being a runner so basically put my hand to anything they asked me to <laughs> um, and yeah it was just brilliant it's such an amazing program you know it really showcases british telly prides itself on accuracy um, and the nerdiness of it and like celebrates the nerdy side what I'm all about so yeah it's brilliant brilliant show yeah I saw from your um social media you're kind of like an artist as well aren't you so some of the things that we saw on screen were made by you backstage is that right <laughs> yes that's the dream country prop prop making I wouldn't say I'm an artist I just kind of like arts and crafts it was the first time I touched paints in years so it was a bit of a, a journey but yeah, that's, you know, I've admired the, the props are like semi-humorous and semi-brilliant. like just brilliant. So yeah, it was great to have a go at that. Yeah, no, they look fantastic. Good enough to be on prime time anyway, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we often talk quite a lot about, um, and I think this came through on Springwatch as well, um, with the, was it mind, Mindfulness Minute? Yes. Oh yeah, the mind, yeah. Mindfulness Minute. Yeah, I think that kind of came through the kind of great need for this link with nature and well-being and us kind of feeling better um i know that in the past you've talked about kind of advocating for nature therapy all that sort of stuff have have you kind of found that useful yourself like throughout life or in in lockdown yep absolutely i mean it's uh, i just i know to so many people it sounds so airy fairy and so you know wishy-washy non-scientific kind of magic hippie type stuff and as somebody, you know, I operate often on like a sense of humor and silliness. So, you know, it doesn't tend to go naturally with that to talk about like, you know, the beauty and the serenity. And <laughs> But connecting with nature is the best thing for your head in the world. And, you know, there's a lot of science behind it, proper science, like real science. Um, and you're often in, you know, if you think of like on a daily basis, we're in the vast majority of the time in modern human civilization, we're in kind of fight response fight or flight like we are you know we're reacting we're busy we're stressed we're thinking we're processing stuff we're doing stuff all the time we're you know stressing about things or working we're never taking that moment of just mindless tasks that we would have had to do as a species you know finding food and that kind of thing so when you're in nature and you're just observing something you just go into a different mindset you know i have mental stresses the same as anyone but i had a period of physical ill health a few years ago and nature is the thing that just completely got me through it it's just mm. brilliant yeah i've seen on um something that you said about um advocating for green prescriptions as well yes yeah so um that's kind of falls hand in hand with the need to i think for more people to just even know that nature's a thing <laughs> um for them to have a look at so you know green prescription is a term for prescribing somebody time in nature or observing nature or in, or in a green space 
outdoors basically um you know and people need to be told how to do it because it's not part of our daily lives it's not you know you're not raised to 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 be shown how to observe nature how to find it Mm. you know if you've not got people to ask how do you start the process of bird watching and learning it it's just really alien so yeah green prescriptions are yeah i think a really good thing to do it is difficult because like you said earlier people have that as like an innate thing from when they're little but then you lose it because you get just drawn into the humdrum of life basically and people don't find time for it so it's yeah you're you're totally right that people need to be shown how to do it and it's really really valuable we're working on some stuff at the hawk conservancy trust where we can show how um like proximity to our birds and just spending time with them is really really good for your well-being and it's definitely something that is so valuable and it's right there and it could be used yes. in such a wonderful way, <laughs> yeah. but it's really exactly. not yeah. <laughs> used as much exactly. as it could be. I, yeah, totally agree. You can see now, you know, with some kids that you talk to, just how alien the concept of it mm. is. Um, you know, we live in such a fearful society. And, you know, kids who can't regularly climb trees or, you know, see these things. And, it, you know, a lot of it comes from a place of fear and the fear comes from a lack of understanding yeah. and education. But you know people people will laugh at you and say it's geeky and nerdy and gross and weird but everyone gets there's a, there's a there's a a species that will get everyone excited you know everyone's got something in the world that'll tickle their fancy like and it's often <laughs> things like tigers tigers dolphins elephants you know all the big sexy yeah. stuff <laughs> but things like birds of prey people don't know what we've got people think all oh, birds are brown and they're all about this big and they're all over there but yeah, the way that you guys can show something with those eyes and the claws and the beak and, and the <laughs> fact that we have those species here in the UK, it's like that's yeah. mind blowing to a lot of people. You know, people don't notice until it's Absolutely. literally shown. You're like, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> it, that has actually shown when when we when we do work with some of the birds, people are also very excited to tell you when they have had that wild experience with those animals. So barn owls, a great example. A barn owl is going to be a bird that you're chances are if you're going to see an owl it's probably going to be a barn owl in britain isn't it when you're driving home from work or when you're going for a walk through the fields and people are so excited to say i've seen this you know um so there is an appetite for it you've just got to kind of reawaken that part of people's brain haven't you absolutely and it's you know when you start creating a mental habit of it you you kind of then start mentally needing it and you you seek it out like i just have to have nature time there's no word for it which Mm. is really annoying but like (laughs) nature time you just i need it or i just need to invent a word for that (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, it does there needs to be so i know obviously a big big part of getting people excited about nature is kind of just communicating about it as you were saying there's no way people are going to love things and care for things if they don't know anything about it what in your kind of experience when you've done this kind of communication work what are the things that excite people what what sort of things are you are you telling them to try and hook that interest for then kind of um, expand on that later? I think, I think there's anything and everything because what you tend to find, like I'm, I, I try to be accurate, like scientifically, and I try to, um, you know, look at the detail and get things correct when I'm talking about it. But also the language in the world of science is so inaccessible to most people in terms of understanding it. So it's like, how do you translate it? And, 
what what I find really interesting is this kind of air of professionality that everybody has to have all the time. You know, we have to be really serious and straight faced and, you know, we're talking about declines of nature here. We can't, you know, be silly. But, you know, it's it's not natural for humans. And I think you can be professional and be very silly and informal with it at the same time. So if you can translate anything about an animal, whether it's behavior, whether it's its ecology, whether it's, you know, some of the stuff that surprised me is some of what I think is right at the nerdy end of the spectrum that I wouldn't think would, you know, really go off on people. You tend to find the sexy species, again, if I post a hedgehog or, you know, people go, ooh, ah, but cute. like leaf miners. I posted about leaf miners recently, and that's one of the most popular things I've ever done. <laughs> and it's like a minuscule moth that's larvae lives inside the two membranes of a leaf. But people, you know, they absolutely just went mad for it. They loved it because it's visually beautiful and it's something you've perhaps overlooked and you can go to any old park at the end of the street and find them. So mm. it's, you know, it's really accessible and just describing it, not in a way that's loads of Latin names and, you know, yeah. words like larvae and pupae. And, mm, <laughs> I think, yeah, just translating it helps. I think sometimes what's helped people that I've spoken to is also just being kind of humble about things as well. So there is so much to know, mm. isn't there? There's so much, that we don't know about things and as individuals there's so much that we don't know it's the, it is why it's the best subject in the world because you could never ever 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 stop learning about it yeah and like i'm a generalist naturalist i just i go for a bit of everything you know i've not got a speciality like birds is probably what i know most about but even then i still get stuff wrong um and yeah you can't know everything like you know, people will be a speciality. They might know every single Latin name of every solitary bee species in the UK. But if you ask them about lichen, they'll be like, oh, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> I like to just dip my fingers in all the pies and just have a little taste and then just spread love about it all. So yeah, I've got, I, there's so much I don't know. You know, people, if I could take someone out on like a walk, it tends to be fungi that people ask me about. And they'll ask me, what's that? And I go, I don't know, brown job. <laughs> it's 15,000 species in the UK. And I'm yeah. like, 100, like... <laughs> So you said about birds being the thing that you know the most about. Tell us about your um, your new YouTube series. We've really been enjoying it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so I only started learning British bird ID when I was 22. Then I got my first job with the RSPB. Um, inevitably, they suck you in. <laughs> you get caught up in it. Um, so, yeah, like learning as an adult and being surrounded by a lot of people who work in the sector who have known birds since they were this big because grandma or granddad were into it um it was quite really intimidating and being like how am I ever going to learn this I remember being confused between cold tits and great tits and being like how does anybody tell the difference between a buzzard and a kestrel which now seems like how could I ever get that mixed up but it's, it's good to remember like you said when you didn't know um and part of that has been you know I, tr I tried to immerse myself in teams of people and I'd go out a lot with a lot of the volunteers on the nature reserves I worked on um and you know there's so many uh people of a certain age older people in our society who have so much knowledge and passion for the natural world that is very lacking today um, and they're so willing to share it i'm sure you guys have come across you know these people who've just got you know it's their everything and as soon as you ask a question it's like they just tell you it all and birdsong mm. was a thing that i my very first day my very first job with the rspb my boss started testing me on birdsong and I was like I don't I did not know a single bird I barely knew birds to look at let alone sound 
Um, but going out with volunteers and people taking the time to teach you these funny little ways of learning it is what's really stuck. And I thought there's not really a resource online that, that kind of does that for people. That's like a human way of remembering it. It's all about like descriptions of noises and formal guides and, or it's just a video of the bird singing and it says, this is a missile thrush. And it's like, yeah, but how, why is that a missile thrush? Like, yes. I know what you mean actually about so when, when I used to read um, bird books and things, it would give you a kind of a, random a phenomenon. Sound. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Let's find one. Let's it, find it, one. it would say something underneath the bird, like cheer up, cheer up. And I think, yeah. <laughs> how does cheer up, cheer up sound? <laughs> this is it. So I've landed on Marsh Harry here, mostly right. silent, but during courtship displays, but during courtship displays, the adults have a wailing, Call. What's that? That didn't sound like a bird, did it? <laughs> you know, this one here, Jack Snipe. Display flight calls include some some sounding like a cantering horse. Collar app, collar app, collar app. What does that mean? That's not what a Jack Snipe sounds like. No, so I, <laughs> anyone who can just, that's a skill in itself. Someone who can decipher bird calls just through those words. Through bird books, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And there yeah. is a science to it, you know, that there is logic, but it just doesn't work for me. The tips Janet. that you give in your in your videos are great. I I mean, I have to brush up every year on bird song and it was even just the differences you gave between the blackbird, the song thrush and the missile thrush. Yes. They're quite similar. It was so, it mm. was so helpful to think, of course, the blackbird does the big pauses between the little bits of singing that he does. And saying yeah. that the, the, the um, missile thrush is a bit of a whinge bag. It's totally true. <laughs> <laughs> it, I've got one outside my window and it's just... Eh. <laughs> yeah, it, and that's the thing. It's the human funny, it's the funny ways of remembering. It's the same thing you use when, you know, you're revising for exams. You try and think of just funny, quirky little ways to remember. So, sorry, you were saying like a top tip for trying to remember these was setting them as, a, as an alarm or as a, as a ringtone. Yeah, yeah, so... Um, I was doing bird surveys in Sherwood Forest two years ago and they've got all sorts of things there that I was not used to. So they've got woodlark, mm. uh, tree pipit, red star, marsh tits, spot fly catchers, all things that I was like, I don't know what they sound like. So I'd set them as like my message, like alert term or alarm. But if you said it is your alarm, be prepared for it to get on your nerves very quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pavlovian response. You're just like, no. <laughs> yeah, when you're out for a walk. <laughs> Yeah. honestly yeah i've had curly with my long term now for like a year whenever i hear curly in real life it's like oh my god <laughs> needs therapy now <laughs> for just for the, get back some love for a curly unfortunately at this point the technology let us down or maybe it was user error because somehow we stopped recording the interview in either case we now rejoin our conversation with lucy as she explains her exasperation with the crises that now face the natural world you know, it's all this stuff I don't need. There's nothing to stop me doing that. And that's Earth's resources. Everyone can do it. And it's encouraged by everyone. And then we can order, you know, we can eat whatever food we want year, like year round. People don't understand issues like pesticides and intensive farming and how that can Im impact on nature and how it has done. People can demand, you know, mangoes from wherever and strawberries in December and all of this stuff that we're just sold by giant corporations that profit off was consuming mm. and nobody cares about the outcome for nature. You know, people care about the big species again, you know, they'll feel upset at a WWF advert with pandas on it and tigers on it, but you know, they don't care that moth populations have declined by nearly 70% in the UK. And yeah, this is depressing. Sorry. No, it's fine. No, I know. I, 
I, I read somewhere that you, I think it was on your blog about, um, <clears throat> you talk about eco-dread, which is kind of sort of merged yeah. into um, kind of eco-anxiety now. But um, I totally get that. You know, sometimes you think, oh, we're, we're trying to do all this, this stuff. We're trying to talk about it, trying to get people involved. And uh, you kind of feel so small in such a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like holding up an umbrella to a tsunami. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's just not going to do anything. I've read some really interesting stuff in the, in the sphere, you know, the dialogue around eco-anxiety and eco-dread about how hopelessness and despair aren't necessarily the worst things in the world in terms of human emotion. Hmm. We tend to just... You know, there's this false positivity where people are like, everything's going to be fine. It's like, the reality is it's probably really not. Um, but that hopelessness can be useful because, you know, through that creativity is born, you know, people adapt in the worst, darkest moments and situations. Mm. But I do think people are just completely walking into this with no clue of how bad it's going to be. People are just in complete and utter denial. Like, so I am by choice child free because I don't want to bring children to this world that's how mm-hmm. bad I think it's going to be which is a horrible thing to say but it's the truth and I can do that I can be you know pessimistic about the outcomes and think it's going to be really bad but I can also do everything I can to try and spread joy about wildlife and spread you know interest in it and enthuse people and connect people with it I can do all I can and still think it's going to be in- inevitably bad in the end yeah just got to yeah. try I know that you're kind of an advocate for not only getting people to kind of get out there, but also to kind of do their bit to support nature as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Help. You know, it might not help in the long run of the, of the overall aim, but we can adapt. We can certainly adapt. I think what, what frustrates me the most in it and what I have seen a change in the, in the conversation and the narrative is, you know, we see climate change a lot, so much more in the news now than we ever used to. Mm. Um, and climate activism is increasing you know Greta and all that brilliant there's almost no dialogue around the biodiversity crisis and that's Mm. as big of a threat if not more so (laughs) because the two things are interlinked like that and everybody focuses on the climate and then everybody starts looking at solutions to fix it as part of like the capitalist system that we're in that is you know private businesses it's technology driven you know it's all about like renewable energy or carbon capture or biofuel you know, the mm. next thing, instead of thinking, why don't we just live a little bit differently? Why don't we flip it on its head? You know, we could live, we have the intelligence, the resources, the technology to live very comfortable, very long lives for the most part for your average you know, population. And you don't need to consume all of this stuff and live in the way that we're living. You know, it, there won't be as much luxury. You might not be able to go on holiday three times a year. You might not be able to eat whatever you want when you want, but you will always have enough food. You'll have shelter, warmth, comfort medicine now this is a question that i know hannah and i are unable to answer ourselves so i always think it's a bit cruel to ask you but i'm going to anyway um (laughs) do you have a top wildlife moment is there something that sticks in your mind that it's like that's the thing that i always go back to to say yeah that was my favorite thing that's ever happened to me Uh, in the wild you can have multiple i have a yeah i have about 20 a year (laughs) wow maybe more than that it can be something really mega and exciting like i'm trying to think like seeing a golden eagle or something in scotland or it can be the thing that just came to mind i was watching a giant species of ichneumon wasp laying eggs in a dead birch tree a few months ago oh i spent like an hour watching it it's just the best this year i had red-tailed bumblebees under my shed in my garden that was brilliant 
Um, so it can be just really boring stuff that's like really day to day. But it's special to um, you. Yeah, it's when you see when you read about, about something, and then you find it, you know, like a behaviour or something. That's mm. when it's like, oh my god, this is so cool. No, when we we in the first episode we did of this podcast, we talked about this. What, what were our favourite wildlife moments? And I think mine was was seeing a badger for the first time. And I was like, that's that's yes. pretty cool. Seeing a badger for the first time is amazing. And then Hannah came in with swimming with whale sharks. And I was like, <laughs> how do you compete with that? <laughs> Not fair. Yeah, but I did also okay. say that when I first saw a badger, it was yeah, equal to yeah. swimming with whale sharks. You did say that. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm it not was sure like in... amazing. Yeah. But swimming with whale sharks was good. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty unbeatable. That's I'll give you that. <laughs> Lucy, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Yeah, thank, thank you, Lucy. You. Um, what What's next for you? What What have you got going on in the next uh, few weeks and months? If you can plan that far ahead. Oh, I don't really know. You know, um, more birdsong stuff. Um, spring's coming. I, I get to this time of year. I wish winter away, and then it gets to the start of February, and spring starts springing, and then. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna miss everything. I'm gonna miss the adders. I'm gonna miss the snowdrops. I'm gonna miss the bluebells. I'm gonna miss this. So yeah, I need to see it spring and as much wildlife as possible. Oh, Hannah, wasn't it great to talk to Lucy? It's amazing to have her here. Yes, it really was. I really, really enjoyed talking to Lucy. Um, I felt a lot in common with her in terms of how she talked about um, the time she used to spend when she was a kid just going out and digging up worms and things like that. I was very much very similar when I was a child. Um, And it was also, it was, although, you know, a little bit sort of saddening to hear, it's nice to sometimes have sort of a realistic outlook from someone about, about that eco dread, you know? I mean, it does... It is quite scary, isn't it? It is. And I think it's perfectly normal to feel it as well. Like it's a big problem and a big challenge and one that um, feels insurmountable sometimes. But, you know, ever the optimist, I like to try and think that if it's a problem we have made, surely, surely it's a problem that we can pull together to fix. Um, but I know what you mean. I had a lot, of, lot in common with Lucy, uh, not least of all, learning the letters of the alphabet by letterland which i'm sure if maybe a few of our listeners will know what letterland is maybe that was just a moment for lucy and i to bond <laughs> over primary school english lessons who knows but yeah lucy thank you so much for coming on again uh, if you want to find out a little bit more about her work uh, then you can do so you find her online just find her lucy lapwing uh, instagram twitter facebook uh, and of course, if you put Lucy Lapwing bird songs into YouTube, you'll be able to find her lessons on teaching yourself how to learn what all the bird songs are. With the arrival of March comes the beginning of spring. And as the weather starts to head in a warmer direction, many bird species in the garden or your local area are starting to think about nest building. Our top tip this month is to offer them a helping hand Try tying together bunches of moss and tiny twigs and hanging them close to your bird feeders to offer the local birds some material to build from. If you have pets, you could even try saving fur from grooming sessions and stuffing it into an old bird feeder or even clipping it to the washing line. The birds can use the fur to line their nests and help to keep them warm. 
So I'm afraid that's it for March. It really does go quickly, doesn't it? How are we at the beginning of March already? I know, it goes so fast. Now, it's a quick reminder to vote for me on our <laughs> Instagram stories and Twitter page, or Hannah, if you really must, uh, for our new matter-of-fact challenge. I reckon this one could get quite competitive. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, there's loads more where this one came from. So don't forget to subscribe and listen back to all our past episodes. Yeah, if you'd like to know more about anything we've talked about in today's show, then head over to our social media pages where you'll find our blog that accompanies this podcast and loads more besides. Just search Hawk Conservancy Trust on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. So next month, we'll be joined by wildlife advocate, writer and fellow podcaster Sophie Pavel to talk all about beavers. I'll say no more. Can't wait. See you then. Bye.